0: Being the first to market, you always constantly have a target on your back, right? There's always going to be people that are going to try to do what you're doing, but do it better.
1: We don't research our competitors, we research our customers. We're more interested in what people want from us, than we are what people want to take from us.
2: Oh, I have products in the UK, oh, I have products in this place, in that place, and it's like, no you don't. And then they'll come to me like, I purchased from your website, and I'm like, what website did you purchase from? And they'll show me, I'm like, that is eight.
3: Hi everybody, my name is Kelly Martin and you are listening to the eighth episode of Making It Work, made possible by FedEx. This podcast puts you in a room with entrepreneurs who want to kick out conventional wisdom and take you through the realities of running a business in 21st century America. In this episode, we're discussing how should you view your competition? As a friendly foe or a force to be reckoned with? Asking the questions is Tom Scallon.
4: We're always told competition is a good thing. It makes our electronics cheaper, our food tastier, and our sports teams better. Well, in theory, anyway. In fact, competition is so wrapped up in the American psyche that any challenge to it is often labeled as a kind of commie flag-waving that threatens our right to freedom and democracy. But all competition was not created equal. A town having two donut shops is better than it having one, right? But when one of them starts stealing intellectual property, selling their sweet treats at a loss, and making sales with misleading marketing tactics, the water becomes muddied, and competition takes on a new meaning. Despite these challenges existing in the real world, the entrepreneurs I spoke to were mostly positive about the impact of competition on their businesses. Take Diana and Jean, founders of The Groomsman's Suit a company based out of Chicago. As manufacturers and sellers of suits and tuxedos, they're in a crowded market. But they claim that once they captured just a small slice of this with their fresh approach to selling fashion, it made them more than capable of competing with the big boys in the long term.
5: So we have, there's sort of a couple different types of competitors that we have, one being sort of the older, bigger brands that have been out in the market for a while. Those are like your men's warehouse, Macy's, um, bigger box stores that do every type of menswear. Um, They don't just focus on wedding attire. And then in the past five years, there have been some new companies that have kind of come onto the scene as far as online marketplaces for tuxedo rentals. And there are only rentals. Those are like the Black Tux, Generation Tux, and mm-hmm. and Menguin. Um, there truly isn't when you look at like what our business is as and being an online um, option for that only does men's wedding wear reliably and affordably to own. There actually isn't anybody that's doing that, you know, with our model. And there's really nobody that carries the wide range of sizes that we carry. So, yeah, we definitely have some competitors, but we're sort of dis- we like to sort of think that we're disrupting the tuxedo rental space by offering an option that's about the same price that men just get to keep.
4: How do you view your competition?
5: We're constantly looking at them. Yeah, we look at them, but we also
6: Try to just focus on scaling our business. Do our
5: own thing. Yeah. yeah. And do our own
6: thing. It's, you can go down the rabbit hole looking mm-hmm. at competition and wondering, Oh, they have a sale. Do we need to do this? Oh my gosh. They just discounted this. And, you know, especially when you're, when you see any kind of dip in sale, which in sales numbers, you start to look, what, what is everybody else doing? What are the, what's their reaction to like this slower time frame for weddings? And that's like not productive. So we just, while we keep an eye on them, we know what they're doing. We just try to always just do it better and provide, you know, the best option for guys so that it's a no brainer when they're shopping.
5: Yeah. We are really focused on like our message to our customers. We have our own voice. We don't try to copy what other brands are doing. And that's worked out really well for us. We definitely have our own unique identity um, in this space. And I think it's one that both men and women relate to very well. A lot of the other brands maybe are a little bit more male-centric because it is menswear and that would make sense. But for us, I think being two women in menswear and having an affinity naturally for weddings, we've been able to create a really nice brand that is both appealing for men and women. Um, We also
6: have... A tremendous amount of flexibility that the bigger com- bigger brands that mm-hmm. once, you know, they're a little bit more stuck, they can't adjust really, you know, you, you can compare it to a ship, like a tiny ship can do a U-turn and head wherever they want. But when you're a big ship, it takes a lot longer to pivot. And so I think that's what makes us really um, driven to stay a small, very uh, flexible team, and to listen, to always listen to the customer, you know, the bigger companies, the bigger, uh, big box stores, the rentals, there's just, it's very restrictive. Um, and their customer service team have, you know, their rules and regulations to follow where, we can sort of say, okay, we're noticing a trend. Customers are asking for this and they don't like this, so we don't do that anymore and now we do this. And it's very quick and I think that's what makes us really, really unique and provides a way better experience to the customers than
5: what our competitors do.
4: How long until someone comes along, maybe even two or three people, and does exactly what you're doing?
5: yeah so we used to be really concerned about this starting out um the the threat of being kind of ousted or taken over, but again, we've really been focusing on what we do and doing it to the best of our ability and not kind of getting caught up with the risk factors, maybe right or wrong, but we also know how how hard it
6: was to get this going and what a what truly just some very good luck factors that played massive role in us being able to do this. Like we spoke about earlier, the cost of entry to starting a fashion brand is so high. And so figuring that out in itself is is a huge
5: challenge. There's not the risk from necessarily somebody just starting um, a company from scratch and, and disrupting us. And I don't really see that there's a risk from a bigger box store trying to get into this space or trying to do a better job in this space because that's not how bigger companies operate anymore. You know, once, you, once you're once you a certain size company, you no longer necessarily do your own research and development to build a new brand. A lot of these brands, Men's Warehouse, Gap, are all trying to figure out how to stop their customer from aging and so instead of building their own brand, they're buying other brands. And so that's really what where we see an opportunity, maybe down the road, is to partner with a brand that would find, uh, that would like a stronger voice in the men's wedding wear space and also have a new sort of influx of an audience to the rest of their types of products in menswear. So we've kind of made it to be sizable enough where it's going to be very hard for us to be disrupted by somebody new. And we're positioning the company to be a great resource for that bigger brand that wants to get it that wants to do a better job in this space because a bigger brand is not going to authentically be able to create a younger, fresher brand that people relate to as well as they would if they just
4: bought it. What's the difference between taking inspiration from other products and brands and just being a copycat?
6: Oh, that's a good question. I mean, a cat, we look to other brands for inspiration. What, um, what we like to do is more, you know, what, what emails from other brands, and it doesn't even have to be our competitors, but what what stands out to us? what makes us click on things? what's that emotional component that we can then take our own experience and apply it to the way we market and brand our, um,
1: our things products. I think it's
6: really important for startups especially to to you hear this all the time actually in in podcast startups and things, but the being authentic to what you're trying to do, who you are as people starting the business, and then have your brand reflect that as much as possible. And don't get caught up in, I need to look like um, this new hot brand that everybody's really likes, because then you start to look like you are a copycat and it does feel inauthentic. And the customers notice it. You know, yeah. you know, when you hit a brand, when you get an, an email or you see marketing, you can say, oh, that looks exactly like I see what they're doing. They're they're sort of spinning off of that other big brand that did the same marketing campaign. And it's kind of a turnoff. So. Yeah,
5: I think where we look to other brands is like, as Jean mentioned, you know, Like some of the experiential things or some of the, even like when it comes to email marketing or whatnot that we see there, and even just in general, like trends in e-commerce, you know, or on social media, how are people, what are the campaigns that we're seeing people do to grow their social media following or... Oh, do giveaways and that sort of thing. Those are interesting to us, but by no means do we ever copy a message or a slogan or even like style looks. Like we develop those on our own. And actually a lot of our own trends are kind of guided by our customers, you know? So mm-hmm. it's almost impossible for us to copy other brands because we have our own customers doing their own thing and we rely on their wedding photos to use Um so it's uh, it's I, we we feel really good, and I think our brand is really authentic for that reason.
4: You don't get the sense that Diner and Gene are quaking in their boots at the prospect of big stores stealing their market share. In fact, they see their business model as so difficult to replicate that it will be easier for the gaps and maces of this world to just buy them out. They're not the only ones to see opportunity and competition. Me, Rahim, he's co-founder of Jinjam Brothers a New York-based company that makes a typical African ginger drink. They've started small with distribution to some supermarkets and an African-themed cafe in Brooklyn to showcase their brand. But that's just the beginning. His aim, along with his brother Mohammed, is to equip and empower African companies to distribute their products abroad. By disrupting competition from China, Europe and North America, they hope to turn a whole continent into a trading powerhouse.
1: Competition is, is a natural component of capitalism, you know, in capitalist society. There will always be, if you're doing anything great, uh, they, you'll always have competition. If you don't have competition and, and none comes, you're probably not going to be around for much longer, <laughs> you know? So yeah, I think competition is, um, in many ways, a healthy thing. So I don't, I don't view negatively at all, at all.
4: Are you not scared that a big drinks company is going to come along and launch their own ginger drink?
1: They most likely will. So that's not, because of knowing that, it's not something that keeps me up at night. They may be able to duplicate a recipe, but they cannot duplicate the inspiration behind the brand. They cannot duplicate our story. They cannot tell the story we can tell about growing up on a certain product. They cannot duplicate the passion that led us to do this because we're not doing this for fun, although it is fun for us, but we're not doing it for fun. We're not doing it because we want to get rich off of it. Uh, there are a lot of things that I could be doing right now that would put me in a much, much better financial position than I have been in the last four or five years. So um, for us, a lot of these things that I that we discussed earlier, you know, changing people's perception of, uh, product from Africa, changing people's perception of black people, uh, people of color in general. Um, these are some of the reasons why we're doing this. I'm not just trying to sell people juice. Uh, it's just a vehicle for uh, for the greater mission of essentially integrating African food, drink, aesthetics, way of life in general into the global culture. That's what we're going after. If a big company tries to duplicate it because they just see it's a, it's a product category that happens to make money, I'm sure they'll make money off of it. I don't think the people that will gravitate towards what we're doing will go away because of that. And in fact, I think those big companies, if they see small companies like ours uh, doing things like this, it's a cheaper investment for them or a better way to invest their time and resources to support those companies and not trying to crush them just for financial gain. It helps, you know. It doesn't contribute much to, 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 to bettering our wall, if you will.
4: I mean, come on, they can't replicate your story, but they can replicate your ad budget about a million times over and they can sell their products at a loss and they can get those products into any store they want overnight. You must be worried that that could have an impact on your business. I mean, drinks companies are famously ruthless when it comes to these kinds of things.
1: Oh, Absolutely. I'm aware of all this and me being worried about it or me losing sleep over it doesn't change the fact that that's, that's just the way it is. That's why it doesn't concern me that much. If they do do that and it ends up crushing our business, then hey, so be it, it's been a fun ride. But before that happens, believe that <laughs> we'll do everything in our power to prevent it from happening. And in this day and age, you know, with the ability to go direct to consumer and the ability to leverage, social uh, networks and, and the likes to, to, to get your message out there. The little guys are not as powerless as they used to be, right? So I think we have a fighting chance if that happens. Do you research your competitors? Uh, actually, no, I don't. <laughs> we don't research our competitors, we research our customers. We're more interested in what people want from us than we are what people want to take from us. Of course, we keep our guards up, we're aware of them. Or anything that could get on our radar, if you see someone's making something similar to our product, we go, we try it out in that sense. But we don't have any, we don't make any concerted effort to keep an eye on our competitor. We keep an eye, we will try something if we see it, simply because we want to know if it's better, if it's better than ours. And so far, that hasn't really been a problem. Plus, we're t- we're too busy to be to be worried about what someone else is doing. To be honest with you, you know, we have no problem about this. Is that not a little bit naive?
4: Because you can be sure as hell that your competitors are researching their competitors.
1: In business, you can be an innovator. You can be a fast follower. Right. You can just be uh, the the low cost provider. Right. We try to position ourselves as an innovator. So we're not. The reason why I say we don't research our competitors is I mean I mean more from the from the point of view of we're not looking to see what they're doing so we can duplicate we we are more interested in seeing what if what we're doing is working and how we can innovate from there if we see someone has a good idea and and it's working out well for them it, and and it's specifically in our product category right we'll learn from it but really we don't put any resources behind it it's if we come across it um, maybe it's naive but that's just the way we've chosen to do it right now and also it might be because of our scale right we can't really afford to be burning resources and energy that we don't have, worried about what someone else is doing when we can barely stay afloat. So we we like what we have, it's working really well. Uh, We just wanna, we we already have very clear vision of what the next two to five years looks like. We just put our heads down and run our race. Uh, We have a saying in, 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 uh, in, in in Guinea, one that runs and looks behind themselves will never get away. So we put our heads down and we run. As fast as we can.
4: What do you do if Coca-Cola launches an African-inspired ginger drink tomorrow? It it would make you feel
1: sick, wouldn't it? It would. (laughs) Not because I have a problem with Coca-Cola per se doing it, because they're a big company, but because I I know they wouldn't be doing it for the right reasons. You know, it would be a pure money play for them, to make money for their investors, and that's it. In some sense, of course, that's what we'll be doing as well. Because if you're not financially viable, you're useless. But we're not just looking to make money. And it's not this big, you know, lofty "Kumbaya, save the world" ideal that we have. That that's not it at all, right? But we, for too long, for far too long, everything that that's come out of Africa, from the products to the people, you know, from the 12 to 20 million slaves that were shipped out in, in terms of intellectual property to all the minerals and agricultural products and all of it that continues to be shipped out of there by pretty much every major Western uh, society and China now. It's time that that becomes less of an extractive relationship and more of a, of a partnership. And if Coca-Cola launches an African-inspired line of products, it will essentially be in perpetrating that, so they'll be doing it for all the wrong reasons. I think, yeah, they'll they'll maybe again they'll they'll tie they'll tie some bringing clean water to a few villages or you know building a couple of clinics that at best can you know. Uh, help you if you have a small cut on your finger, but nothing that will really have an impact on the, on the society there. The, the average person that shops at a Tesco or at a, at a Whole Foods will read that on the package and feel good about themselves and go, oh, yeah, I'm spending my money well. But it really doesn't do anything. So that's why it would bother me. It's not because they will crush our business. I can always find work, I'll always, I'll always be fine financially. Tell me more about the bigger picture
4: you were talking about before in terms of making the world more aware of African
1: products. Yeah, so the bigger story is, think about what the likes of Alibaba did for China. Building a platform that enabled a small producer, a small manufacturer in China to sell to anyone around the world. That has completely changed Chinese society. Uh, that and a lot of other things. But it's been such an enabler for folks that within China either wouldn't have the technical know-how or the sophistication to in- integrate themselves in the global supply chain. We think a similar opportunity exists in Africa. So for us, starting with the way we started, it's about a lot more than just the ginger drink. So in the long term, if we can do something like that, right, uh, not eventually start sourcing our ingredients from Africa to using our products, but even more importantly, open up the channels to enable those folks there to be able to access uh, the markets, the Western markets. If you're a small farmer in rural, I don't know, Cameroon or Guinea, and you wanna sell to a small chain of supermarkets, uh, mom and pop own chain of supermarkets in, in Amsterdam, how do you go about doing that? You know where to start. You and I, right, college educated, so-called sophisticated, live in a Western world. If someone told you, hey, you know, you're in charge of helping sort out the logistics of getting one ton of yams from rural Guinea to The Hague, go. How do you navigate all the paperwork that goes with that? How do you navigate everything that comes with that? What the agricultural rules in the local country, the rules in the Netherlands? You wouldn't even know where to start either. And so, so that's, this is the kind of global supply chain we've built, and, and we're asking folks that in many ways live hundreds of years apart in terms of development or progress to compete in the same arena. So being able to build something that kind of levels that playing field, that opens up those channels and makes it seamless for folks, uh, we think that's an opportunity worth, worth pursuing. So the long play, that's the long play, right, is to make it. So that anyone anywhere in Africa can sell to anyone anywhere in the world. And and not be prejudiced by, it, by its origin. Beyond that, products that come out of there in many ways are already what the Western world is looking for. It's natural stuff, it's organic stuff, it's stuff that hasn't been adulterated and fed with by, by a big chemical giant for hundreds of years in many ways. So it's uh, it's 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 something that's going to take decades, if not a couple of generations, to make happen, like to fully realize. But someone has to start the process, right? And there are a lot of people doing a lot of great work in that, in that space. And we think that we can contribute greatly to that.
4: Should you not be concentrating on selling your own product, Raheem, rather than the whole of
1: Africa's? I mean, the reason we started this was, was with that end goal in mind. And that essentially is our business, so if you want to say, speak of a product, that will be our product. It's just that we're two guys with no savings, with an idea, with a clear picture of what the end game looks like. We had to pick a point of entry. And that point of entry was a single bottle of juice sold at a, co- at a few corner stores in New York City. Right? And we go from there.
3: You're listening to Making It Work, coming up. You're lying, you're lying. You're
2: lying to your customers. If you overpromise and you know you can't deliver, it it makes me so
0: mad. It's exhausting to constantly push the bar forward. You never get to cross the finish line. You never get to say, okay, boom, I did it. I'm here. This is it. This is final. People are scared to show the ugly
2: because it's ugly. A marketing specialist doesn't want to see that on their billboard. Uh, Ugly before and after. But guess what the customer wants to see? They want to see that my hair can go from this to this.
4: The entrepreneurs I spoke to for this episode were certainly not scared of taking on their competition head on. It seems that in their mind, if a segment isn't crowded, then there's probably not enough demand for their product in the first place. aquila's no exception. She's owner of Edge Entity, a Memphis-based company that makes cream to stimulate hair growth. Competing in beauty, an industry renowned for big profit margins and huge marketing budgets, doesn't face her. But what does bother her is companies misleading their customers with shallow marketing techniques and poor imitations of her products.
2: My competition um, is pretty much anybody in the beauty industry. So, other hair care brands, cosmetic lines, not so much ca- cosmetic lines as much as hair care companies, but the way I view competition is not in a way of um, I'm competing with them. Yeah, I guess I do compete with them. My brand competes with them because there are a lot of big brands that people may go to instead of coming to Edge Entity. But I mean, I've heard otherwise, where people will come to Edge Entity as opposed to those bigger brands because they have had as much success. But as a business owner, I look to those hiring brands and those brands that are well-known as um, kind of a blueprint. What they've done... I don't do exactly what they do. I find the faults in what they're doing and I try to do it better. So I look at those those bigger brands and I'm like, okay, I love that commercial, but I would have done it this way. I would have done it that way. I like this brand, but what I don't like about it is this, this, and this. So I kind of like capitalize on what they're doing wrong and I make my brand do that better so that it stands out against their brands. And that's the way I compete. That's that's what I think about competitors. I'm a small brand. So I'm always going to be compared to those larger brands and those well-known, established brands. So I try to see like what even all, all the way down to ingredients, like, okay, so this smells like medicine. Who wants to walk around with something on their scalp smelling like medicine? I've seen a lot of brands like that. So I'm like, okay, the biggest compliment I get is how pleasant the smell of my products are. So I like to take whatever they're lacking in and apply it to my brand. Their brands don't have like certain ingredients for women when it comes down to their, their hair vitamins. So I made sure I kind of included certain things in my hair vitamins. So, yeah, I always look at competition as a way to just elevate myself. You know, I take their weaknesses and make it my strengths.
4: Can you pay too much attention to others around you?
2: You can. Because sometimes people are constantly paying attention to what's going on with other people. They're not focused on how to build their own brand or originality. So that's one thing about, you know, my brand is very original. And it's because I have focused so much on myself. I only seek inspiration from other brands. You know, I don't look at it as completely being just competitive. You know, I like to also be inspired by what they're doing. A lot of brands have bigger budgets than I do. They work with Bigger celebrities than I do. But I never take that and say, you know what? Um, I'm not doing things right because they're doing things this way. No, I still focus on what I'm doing and what makes my brand great. People have to stop focusing on what other brands are doing, solely on what other brands are doing to try to make their business successful. Like focus on what makes you successful and original. Last thing you want to do is be doing the same thing that people are used to seeing every day. That's the thing about these marketing people. A lot of times they don't have an idea of what's really going on or what really appeals to people. I had a meeting with the people who do my billboards and I was like, all of these ideas are are not really good. Like, What your your ideas are are not good because you're so busy trying to appeal to people that you really forgot how to. I don't know how to explain it, but they, they, they just... Sometimes they lose sight of ex- exactly how to to get to people's hearts.
4: Are you saying that you really have to understand your clientele, that maybe a lot of the bigger brands spread themselves too thinly?
2: Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. I don't know. You may not follow me on Instagram, but you should. If you look on my Edge Entity Instagram, you will see that one thing that I do differently is I show results. And that's why I have as many customers as, as I have. So if you want someone to purchase your product, you don't put an ad with a person holding a jar saying this product works. You show pictures of actual people with their hair bald before, and then a month later, they have hair in that area. That's how you get people to buy your product. It has to directly affect them. I mean, of course, you got a pretty girl with some pretty hair and she's holding a jar. What does that do for somebody? They don't care. Her hair is pretty. But what was it like before? Is this just a model? No, I want to see raw, unedited results. And that's what I provide. That's what's different with my brand. People are scared to show the ugly because it's ugly. A marketing specialist doesn't want to see that on their billboard. Uh, Ugly before and after. But guess what the customer wants to see? They want to see that my hair can go from this to this. So we got to, you know, play on what our clientele needs, not what the marketing specialists are, the advertising specialist wants to see on a billboard. That's what made my business successful, being able to show that my products work.
4: I want to talk about the darker side of your industry, and that's products that make promises that, that aren't true.
2: How does that make you feel? I hate it. I hate it because I am one of those companies that, I don't promise anything. That's one. You never promise anything because everybody is different. So what works on me is not going to work on the next person. Even my customers, my customers, they 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 get back they get results faster than I do. Sometimes, like it took my hair seven months to grow back, and I, I've got customers that took one month to grow back. But um, those companies that basically, you know, I, you're lying. You're lying. You're lying to your customers. If you overpromise and you know you can't deliver, it it makes me so mad because then I have customers who come to me and they're like, I've used everything. Nothing's going to work for me because these products probably don't work. And then when they come to me, it's like they're scared to try because they've tried so many things that don't work. And I don't even know if these people are actually testing things out. That's one thing about my product. I tested it out on a lot of people before I said it worked, but- yeah, I, I despise those companies that, you know, are making products and selling it to people and they don't actually um,
4: work. Because that make you look bad.
2: It does. Because before even trying a product, and I'm not going to say that my product has worked on everybody, but at least I give kind of a guarantee. Uh, well, no, I don't give a guarantee. I, I, that's the thing. I don't give a guarantee. Um, I let you know that it's a possibility that it won't work. But, um, yeah, it makes me look bad because people lose trust. They lose trust in in just anything working at all because of their previous experiences.
4: Do you uh suffer from copycats of, of people copying your products? Uh yeah. And um, marketing.
2: Yes. Like, oh my god, like I have had like to like so many different pages, like just replicate my brand advertise on Instagram and, and say that they have agency products for sale and have built entire websites selling edge agency products. People are not receiving their products. They're making purchases. Oh, I have products in the UK. Oh, I have products in this place, in that place. And it's like, no, you don't. And it's so frustrating because these customers are really purchasing from people. And then they'll come to me like, I purchased from your website. And I'm like, what website did you purchase from? And they'll show me. I'm like, that is fake.
4: Yeah, because you're almost doing the customer service then for, for these for these frauds.
2: Frauds. Yes. I can't believe that they actually like make websites. You can purchase from these websites. They have Instagram pages and they'll screenshot pictures from my my real Instagram page and create their own like, oh, oh, my goodness.
4: It's obviously frustrating for Aquila that she has to compete against companies that are making false promises, never mind answer for the ones that are ripping off her product. But she's definitely seen opportunity in rejecting the traditional marketing techniques of her competitors and trying something new, showing the effect of hair loss, however uneasy on the eye, is welcomed by her customers and creates brand loyalty. Another entrepreneur who does not shy away from the realities faced by her customers is Dana. She's founder of Anna Ono, a Philly-based company that makes lingerie for breast cancer survivors. When she started out seven years ago, she was the first producing fashion for women who'd undergone mastectomies. Her competitors are trying to catch up, but she's not worried. It simply reassures her that she's been doing the right thing all along.
0: I welcome competition and there's a very specific reason for it. When I launched Ana Ono, I was the first lingerie line for women with breast reconstruction. And that actually was not good for me. It was a detriment and not a plus. So when I was talking to future investors about my business model and about what I was doing to change the mastectomy landscape. People would say to me, well, if this was a need and this was something that people wanted or desired, somebody else would already be doing it. And it actually reflected poorly on me that I was the first one making bras for women with breast reconstruction. And I was shocked by this. And that has now been the last few years. And as the needs are arising and more and more people are identifying the needs and the ability to shop on the internet is becoming our new lifestyle, there's more and more lines that are being launched that are addressing this need and in different ways. And to me, this is a validation that what I created seven years ago is now actually being something that people are focusing on. So for me, when competition enters my landscape, I welcome it because I can go out now and talk to my investors and say, see, I was right. I was just early. And now I'm the leader of the pack. And of course, being... The first to market, you always constantly have a target on your back, right? There's always going to be people that are going to try to do what you're doing, but do it better. And I look at Uber versus Lyft, right? Uber was great. Uber entered into the market and Lyft came in right behind them and the road was already paved. And I don't know their annual revenues and I don't know how close to one another that they are, but Lyft had to do very less explaining to the general population than what Uber had to do. Uber had to take on that whole responsibility themselves. And so when I launched Ana Ono, I realized I wasn't just telling the world about breast cancer, I was also educating the world about breast reconstruction. And that's a very big responsibility for a very small company. And so as competition comes into the landscape, I have to keep being strong and I have to keep being a leader, which puts a different sort of pressure on me. But now the rules of engagement to the general public have changed because we're all educating now rather than just me taking on that burden in its entirety. So
4: you see companies launching similar products to yours as them taking inspiration, not them stealing your idea?
0: Yeah, I feel like there's in some regard, uh, excitement that when they are pitching to their investors, if that's what they see in their future, that they have to list me on their competition slide. (laughs) And hopefully, it's a tall drink of water, right? Hopefully, I'm doing a good job. Hopefully, I'm putting out the right message and the right product that I am viewed as competition. And uh, that being said, unfortunately, in the business that I'm in, the white space is so vast. There are so many missed opportunities of solutions that people need outside of a traditional underwire molded cup bra, that there's a lot of landscape to be covered. And I can't cover it all. Um, I would like as much as I possibly can because I really believe in my products, but fashion is fashion. And somebody might really, really need my bra, but not like what I have to offer. And I think that that's where room opens up for competition is that I love jeans, but it doesn't mean I don't buy my jeans from five different brands. And um, that can help really build your business and encourage your business model if other people are entering into that space of the unknown with you because it does show that there's a need out there that people need to have addressed.
4: But surely you might be able to cover more of the landscape if you didn't have people imitating your product and taking money out of your pocket.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't faced it uh imitator yet um you know i feel like the the other brands that are launching are doing similar in solutions but are doing a very different product uh so that so that's good for all of us and and you hope that what you have built is strong enough and engaging enough that it can't be replicated but maybe there's an alternative that gets designed that's also another solution or another direction but it it turns itself into a different sort of stress. I have to stay in the lead. I have to stay in the front of the pack. I have to come out with new items and new solutions so I can continue to build my audience and I don't lose my current customers to the next line and say, oh, this one's new, this one's fresh, this one has a different color. And now I've lost my business of that customer that I've worked so hard to get. Um, In time. So there, so it's just a different level of pressure where before I was educating and informing and telling people why women with breast reconstruction and why women that have lost their breasts from breast cancer want different bras. And now we're all saying that. So now people are like, oh wow, women with breast cancer need different bras and they get it, which makes my shopping experience a, a little bit easier for people to find and for people to understand.
4: So many entrepreneurs have spoken to me about the importance of constantly improving and constantly innovating to to stay ahead of the competition. Isn't it sometimes just exhausting?
0: It's exhausting to constantly push the bar forward and to always move your finish line ahead of where you are. I feel like you never get to cross the finish line. You never get to say, okay, boom, boom. I did it. I'm here. This is it. This is final. You feel like you do that. And then you're like, but I could do so much more. And your finish line gets thrusted so much further ahead of where you are standing today. And it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure to constantly innovate. I am envious of companies that are a one product show, a one product hit and can make money by doing that. You know, I I don't have that business model and and Instagram is is the devil to this, right? Like Instagram shows you, oh, here's some really fun socks that you should wear. You should buy these socks. And all they do is sell socks and they have a really amazing business selling socks. And you're like, wow, why didn't I just think to sell socks? That would have been fantastic. (laughs) Could have been so much easier.
4: I always wonder that when I speak to entrepreneurs, some of their business models seem so much easier than than other businesses' business models. And I think at the top of the complicated businesses, it must be fashion.
0: At the top of complicated businesses is fashion. You are under the gun for new styles, new trends, new colors, new fit, all of these things. And if you choose wrong you choose wrong and it can really hurt you a lot. Um, and and that is, it's a risky business. And, um, and then people have to like you. People have to like you. They have to like what you do. They have to like what you stand for. If you're not just selling a white t-shirt where people just need a white t-shirt, you really have to have them love you. And- um, and that's emotional on top of just running a business, right? It's like, do you like me? Do you do you believe in me? Do you love what you're seeing? Because I love what I'm seeing. And uh, fashion puts itself into a very quirky corner because of those other elements that are needed in order to sell your clothing. Do you speak to your competitors? Yeah, I, I have uh, competitors and who I viewed as competitors in my business. Um, mastectomy has been a business model for about the last 40 years. And um, I really didn't have a hard time differentiating myself from my competitors because I like to say that they were asleep at the wheel. Uh, they started to look too technically at what they were offering to individuals affected by the disease that I serve and became very complacent. And I was just at the moment in time where I entered into a space that was tired and a space that was wide open. And because they were so focused on one product, one consumer, one body type, as the world and as society was changing and as women's treatment options were changing, they didn't focus on it. And I was there to to focus on the their lost opportunities. And I hope that that helps me grow my business, that that is my differentiation point, because those might also be people that are interested in my business as my business grows. And maybe they want to expand their portfolio and bring me into you know, corporations and companies that are already well-established, that have operating systems and everything else. Um, that is the ideal when you start a business is that you can grow and expand and scale. And they are my opportunity to do something like that. So the competition that I was focused on I filled in their voids. Is is what I did with Ana Ono, and um, eventually those voids will be big enough where you know they'll see a need and desire to fill them as well, and hopefully they fill them with you know products that I have already built and generated and created.
4: You told me you're quite lucky because your business hasn't been affected by imitators. What's the difference between uh, a competitor and an imitator?
0: I think an imitator would really take exactly what you're doing, how you're doing it, how you're saying it, and copy your business model and do the exact same thing. Maybe I'm a bit protected in that zone because I have a very specific formula. Um, I've been a fashion designer my whole life. I was affected by the disease myself. I generated bras that were fit to the solutions into the style and to the fashion I wanted. Um, So we're really looking at a a very specific persona and type of person that can really pull off that same exact thing. And maybe that's why I've been protected for a while. But a competitor is maybe somebody else who has still been affected by the disease, but may not know how to navigate the fashion world and may not know how to make product, but understand that there's a need and desire for something else. And so they generate and create a similar product, but in a different way. And that's who I see as competition, not as imitation.
4: In terms of differentiating yourself from the competition and constant innovation, um, are you ever scared that the creativity is going to run out? Do you live in fear of it?
0: I don't live in fear of losing my creativity because at the end of the day, I'm an artist and I am a creator But what I get afraid of is that running and managing a business is very taxing. It's taxing on all other elements of your life. So what ends up happening is the time and dedication I get to being innovative and the time and dedication I get to being creative is slim to none. So... I often say that the whole reason why I went into this business was so I could design beautiful intimates that work for women with alternative bodies. And I want to always keep designing and always keep creating. But as the CEO of my business, I end up doing everything else. The accounting, the operations, the HR requirements, hiring, firing, sales, marketing. And the time and moment I get to really create comes down to a very, very fine line when I'm desperate for creation. And you're right. If, if it doesn't come to you, if you don't feel that innovation in that moment, it's really tough to find because you really have to isolate yourself from all of the noise in order to Address what you need to do to continue to grow your company and to grow my company is more product, and uh, it's a it's a challenge that I deal with on a daily basis. I'm not afraid of it running out. I'm afraid of not having the time to do it.
4: Okay, got any messages for your competition?
0: Watch out! <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next time. It's kind of a mind in that sense, that you're like, how am I so successful? How am I doing so well? And how do I look at my bank account and it's so low? My first month, I made about
2: $20,000 in the first month of business. This was not even intentional. I put it out there and people were buying like crazy.
4: So when to scale? All day, every day, all the time. You're always scaling. You're always trying to make it bigger. Could a huge surge in orders uh, sink your business?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Making It Work. We would love to know what you think, so remember to rate and drop us a comment on this podcast. It really helps us out a lot. And if you don't want to miss out on the next one, be sure to subscribe. Thanks to our entrepreneurs, Diana Gans and Gene Foley, Raheem Diallo, Akila Augusta, and Dana Donafrey for their advice. Making It Work is produced by Yolene Marguerite, written by Tom Scallon, and edited by Lars Blockenberg, with creative direction from Jeroen von Konigshoven. Music by Fresh Big Mouth, who created this song with actual sounds from the FedEx Superhub in Memphis, Tennessee. This show is delivered to you by FedEx and presented by Tom Scallon and me, Kelly Martin.